Hey folks, Matthew and I are very excited to present to you our first guest, Ryan Herrick. Ryan is a singer and guitarist from Chicago, and he's currently releasing a lot of great new music, some of which we've selected to score this episode with today. So all of the music cues that you'll hear are from Ryan's new album called Pilgrimage, and there are going to be several singles and EPs released in the next few months. We had a great time having this conversation. It was really wild, and I hope you get a lot out of just the variety of perspectives that we tried to bring to this topic. Enjoy the show. So Matt, I have a question for you. Yep. Do you know what serves you? Uh, me personally? Yeah. Well, it could be the devil, it could be the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know, though. I honestly hadn't really thought about it too much. Okay. Yeah. Can I ask you a different question? Yeah. Do you know what you're in the service of? Probably myself. I don't know. Um... To be honest, I mean, those are two topics I'd never considered in real depth until you brought them up as a topic for this. It's weird. It's one of those questions. It's like the do I exist question. It's It seems so simple. It's like I'm in service of, you know, my fellow man or my community or something. And what serves me is harder to answer, honestly. But yeah, when you really boil it down, it's a lot harder to put a finger on than it seems like it would be. So I haven't completely reached a conclusion yet. Uh, Ryan, maybe you can help us out by defining the word serve in this context, because I think that's going to be really helpful. Mm. How would I define that? Let me think. Um, I'm not sure of the etymology of the, of the word serve. I'd be interested to know the origins of serve, just because I like to think about, you know, where phonetically, where the, where these words come from, like deep down in the archetype of like language sure languages first started being formed if it helps i can tell a story about how uh you actually helped me to recontextualize that word yeah actually yeah that'd be cool okay i'd like to hear that so i'll make this story a little bit vague so that i'm not giving away identities or opening old wounds but there was an event that i would go to with my friends on a regular basis and I started to realize that this thing was more of a tradition that was helping to keep alive a friendship that was based on tradition. You know, it wasn't really based on commonalities or shared experiences other than certain traditions. It was kind of like, well, we're friends because we're friends. We're friends because we have a history of knowing each other, and I was going to bail on this event. So I called you. And I said, you know, I feel like I want to break these plans and I don't really know if I enjoy the company of these people anymore. And to make a long story short, your response to me was something to the effect of, well, if this friendship is not mutually serving you, then that's something worth examining. And I had thought a lot about capital S service, the idea that we need to give ourselves to something and create a system of sacrifice and reward somehow through some greater purpose. I had never thought about the word service or serve as something that can 
exist as a dynamic between two people, but not mean subservient and not be hierarchical. You know what I mean? Like superior, inferior. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that conversation with you really helped me to recontextualize that, you know, like, is the friendship, is the space between you? Mm. And is the sharing between you allowing you to grow together, allowing you to foster one another's experiences together and turn that into a shared experience for you both? And so what I was feeling at that time was a forcing of shared experiences in order to keep alive a friendship that had long ago died. Mm. So you really helped me on that phone call to recontextualize that. And the things that I felt that I was in the service of at the time, I was making a lot of sacrifice and I was learning a lot about myself at that time, but I wasn't really looking at what exists in my life that is serving me. And again, not in a subservient way, but what exists in my life that is enriching my life. Gotcha. And hopefully what I was trying to articulate in that phone call maybe was, um, inviting like some kind of like reframe of interpersonal dynamic like you mentioned the space between people yeah and when you can identify that and find ways to see okay if i look step outside of who i am and who this person is and who i think this person is and just evaluate how are these two energy systems interacting with one another and what is it ultimately serving and really looking at it from an objective perspective I feel as though that very like process or that technique has helped me because I've had those same exact issues. And whenever there's like a fallout in like a friendship or a deep seated relationship and things just aren't working anymore and you're unfortunately the one who's like realizing it and they're not, I think that finding a way to to seek objectivity and not placing blame on the other person for being the way they are, it's not you know, the the problem is not you and the problem is not them. It's the space in between. It's, okay, what are we doing here? Are we just holding a tradition alive because ultimately you're in like severe pain that you don't want to acknowledge and I'm just the person that's here holding this pain for you and I'm supposed to feel good about that? Um, and I'm just pulling that scenario out of thin air. So if that came out of left field, it did come out of left field. <laughs> uh, but... uh you, Joel, you're a cancer, I'm a cancer. So we have this family, family friendship kind of thing where like we have our crabs and we have our claws and we hold on. And um, that's a very hard thing for a cancer to let go of is friendships because it's such a unique identifier to who we are. So when you call me that day, I think I remember I, I was in my apart, I was in my old apartment. Um, I remember talking about that because, you know, that, that kind of fallout I don't want to say it's a theme in my life, but it is definitely a um, leading edge. And it's it's one of those lessons that I keep bringing up. And okay, I guess we're going there. I guess we're going to learn about it. Okay. If not a theme, at the very least, a recurring challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like it goes hand in hand with growth, you know? Like it's recurring because it's like an appliance or something. It might serve you. You might continue to serve it and service it. But at a certain point, things break down irreparably and it's just like, okay, well, doesn't mean that it sucked or the time was wasted. It just means that you've now reached that fork in the road. It can totally happen in relationships too. Yeah. And it's, I think it's a great moment for, um, to challenge like your responsibility. 
like, okay, responsibility means I have, you know, this is my ability to respond here. So how am I going to respond in this scenario? Because maybe if I respond in a different way or in a better way, it's going to be easier next time. And then easier after that and easier after that versus getting locked in. Like, you know, say for example, you have a really shitty boss and you're just butting heads all the time. If you can find ways to break through that communication space in a way that might be more neutral or more responsible, maybe you can find ease within that at the end of the day. Mm. And it's way easier said than done. I also think about what comes up a lot for anybody on a particular, in, in a particular phase of growth in their life. What might come up a lot is, are some people only there for you during a phase of your life because you need them there during that specific phase? If somebody is not a friend anymore, if somebody is not in your life anymore, is it okay to see the time that they were there for you as perhaps the only time? that you needed them and they needed you and you were able to reciprocate affection for each other and reciprocate support for each other but it's okay that they're not there now and i you know to go back to the space between you mm-hmm. if that gap has widened or if there's something filling it if there's you know resentment filling it now or if there's something more positive than that filling it now and it's part of anybody growing, you know, it's part of anybody changing and getting older. And sometimes there are things that are going to get in the way of your ability to understand another person and act with the same regard for life as they do. That's certainly where I found myself when I made that phone call. Yeah. Well, let's, let's pause for a second and, sure. and reflect on, um, how nice it is to be able to find like if you can have those relationships where you can have that level of consciousness with the other person where like you can talk to each other about not feeling comfortable about something that is existing between the two of you whether it's a friendship or intimate relationship or whatever it might be but in light of all this that's a really special thing to acknowledge is like oh when you finally find someone who can like go there and talk to you and not get like butt hurt about Mm. (laughs) you know having transgressed you or triggered you into feeling a certain way or unconsciously been engaging in some kind of, you know, seesaw of underlying dynamics that were unconscious. It's a special thing when you can find people like that. And I count my blessings because I can, I can count those people on my hand, but I mean, they're, they're the kind of friends that I feel like they kind of grow and change with you as you grow and change. I find that those are the kinds of people that don't disappear and the disappearance of those friends that I'm talking about, maybe it just had to happen. Maybe maybe it was my I'm sure it was my fault, but I don't want to get in that blame, that feeling of blame or guilt because well, it's yeah, so but you're easy sure to. that it's your fault because you're a cancer. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's my nature right there, man. Fighting nature. Well that even begs the question, like, is it anyone's fault? Like, is there a fault to be had? Because like, is it wrong for relationships to end? You know, it's, it's, we're kind of hardwired to think that it is, but 
I mean, it's sort of, I remember in that Pete Holmes book that you lent me, Joel, like when they were talking about his first kind of foray into the dating scene and he was trying to morally justify one night stands and flings and rebounds and stuff. And like, how do I do this? Like, isn't this sleazy? And people were like, no, it's like, I mean, obviously it has to be consensual, but it's like, if you're both willing to do this, it's serving a purpose. You're having a good time. It's this finite thing and then it's done. And I've always kind of thought that throughout my life, that that's not any less valuable than something that lasts for your entire life as long as you were truly there and the other person was truly there and it was something real. It can be a flash in the pan and then it's done and just be a pleasant memory or be something that got you through some hellish period or or just be something that happened. And that can weigh just as much as a friendship that lasts until you're 90. So it's kind of weird because it's like, I think about this a lot with old friendships that I've had where almost all of my friendships have busted up in some way and it's like, I just kind of... That seems to be how I attach to people is like there'll be these like very intense periods of a few years and then it won't necessarily end in flames. It'll just, you know, we'll drift like we'll kind of start doing other things and then we'll realize it's been three years since we've called each other. And then but it's always cool when we talk again. It's that kind of thing. And I think it used to really, really rattle me and I could point to a thousand reasons how I blew that up. And they're all probably true to some extent, but when I really think about them now, it's like, no, they just kind of changed. They just grew. And I'm really, really grateful to have had that relationship with that person. And I learned a lot from them. And they, honestly, I would have been fucked if I didn't have them in my life at that period. And oftentimes vice versa, but then it ends. And I don't know, it's weird. I just think about that nowadays and it doesn't feel any less valuable to me than friendships that I hope to keep with me for the rest of my life. It still hurts, it still feels sad, but you know, like it still means something. There is a rabbinical term called zimzum, and the history behind it is at first there was only God, and then God had to create space which was not God. You know, there has to be something other than God in order for God to let the world coexist with him and not only as him. So I've been reading some theory recently about that applied to humanity and interpersonal zimzum where there is a space between us that is shared between us and then there is space within us that is for somebody else the whole theory is really just about space about in the interpersonal space that we share and that was is exclusive to our bond as as two people that which is inclusive to our bond as two people that which is us directing energy to somebody else and allowing their energy to flow back into us. So when I think about knowing what serves you interpersonally, that's kind of where my head is at right now because I've been doing this reading. It's kind of, it has a lot to do with knowing what is in the space between you and knowing not just what is exclusive to your relationship, but what is possible, I guess. There's a better way to put it. I'm chewing on You want me to keep ripping? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, please do. I'm I'm with you. I'm just still chewing on it, so... Well, the book that I'm reading right now is actually specifically about marriage. It's about uh, the Zimzum of love, 
Um, so it's specifically talking about a romantic partnership, but the idea basically can be translated into, I think, any interpersonal relationship where you have a flow of energy between you, you have a flow of energy around you, you have a flow of energy within you as an individual. So allowing space to exist within you, apart from you, and between you, allowing and offering zimzum is the idea of making space, cherishing space, sharing space, and I guess really acknowledging that there is a space. And that's getting into, I mean, for me, that just makes me think of the metaphysical question. You know, what is the ultimate nature of reality? What What is all of this? Because when you say space around and space within and without, that to me is just the bottom line is everything is energy. And fundamentally, that's kind of the basis from my spiritual understanding and the, the basis of my spiritual meditation practice too. That's what's coming up for me as you're talking about this kind of stuff is like, well, I mean, ultimately everything is is one, all is one, you know, the many are one and the one is many. And so that being said, these lines don't exist. This within you, without you, the space between you, the place in, in me that I have for you that you're describing as Zimzum, those lines are creations of the mind, really. So you, you're you're kind of describing like to differentiate between those spaces is to contradict the idea of oneness. I guess that's what it is. It's just you're creating the distinction. So it's like the, yes, I guess the flow of energy, like you look at a river, you go out in the ocean, there there are no borders, there are no lines. Everything's, you take it from Alan Watts, everything's wiggly, everything's squiggles. Yeah. There are no formative lines, there are no border lines. And so I think that there is a definite like mental process that it sounds like. But that doesn't mean that the mental process isn't something that is sacred or meaningful mm. to the person or the, the two people that you're describing. So I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying that there's like there's an awareness where there's like there are these layers and everything's really like kind of um, transient in a way. To me, it starts to get to a point where it gets so big it. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. I guess <laughs> <Like> fun though. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Do you think that happens regardless of whether or not whether or not we think about it? Like do you think that those spaces exist independently of our mm. consciousness of them? Mm. Like I think therefore I don't know. Is yeah. it like I think therefore I am? Dude, I'll try to tie everything back to that, man. Like every episode <laughs> I fucking love that thing. I don't know why, but but I don't know. I mean, this kind of thing makes me think of that though specifically just because a lot of stuff that gets very metaphysical and energy-based, I always think about that other, like that counter argument to it because I don't know where the hell I stand on half of this stuff, but the counter argument, you know, the more utilitarian side of it, which is, you know, are we all just kind of animals still, you know, like are we just... Mm -hmm. Is it? it's, it's the it's the Cartesian perspective that I guess has driven a lot of science. It's driven like the direction of society in a way too, and so like there's kind of uh, one's kind of opposite of the other. It feels like at times. But then there's like, do we have to choose? Could they both exist right. together? That's where I stand. I guess mostly with it is I feel like sometimes they actually exist pretty harmoniously. It's just it takes a little bit of a existential deep breath to. Mm -hmm. accept it but a lot of times that's the way that makes the most sense to me we come up with some of the more the more left brain 
theories around these things to govern some of the right brain things. But I don't know, this this kind of stuff, though, whenever it becomes like the more interpersonal stuff, the more metaphysical stuff, it can go so many directions. It's just fun to it, it try them all. Yeah. Well, and that's the funnest part about this is is approaching the the metaphysical non-dualistically and like allowing the theories to exist in harmony with each other. That's kind of my favorite part about what we do with these episodes. It's kind of like what science is though, right? Like it's like science isn't really a sure thing. It's like, Hey, I got this theory that works right now in the world. Yeah. (laughs) Like, well, (laughs) you know, like I feel like, um, even some of Einstein's equations are outdated now. I, I don't know. I'm not a particle physicist and all that kind of shit, but (laughs) I, I feel as though like science, which is almost like another framework for religion, you know, in a sense for other people that are just wired differently or think of things differently. They science and God, there was like a split somewhere in history. And I feel like they're trying to seek the same thing and maybe they need to like come together in some capacity. And if you look at like the framework of science, they're only like using whatever working definition seems to to be applicable to the time frame, the period of time that it's in. Yeah. And so it's very fluid, really. Yeah, I've always looked at it like a leapfrogging thing almost, like religion and spirituality and anything that deals with that kind of great unknown. It just posits something or it asks the question or it just says, hey, there's some darkness over there. And then science scrambles to fill that in and color it in and make it make sense. So they both need each other in a way, you know, not only can they both coexist, they both require one another because religion Mm -hmm. makes us look at the sky and say, what the hell is that? And then science makes us spend 300 years trying to write it down. Mm -hmm. And then we write it down and we understand it. And then we say, well, there's something even further. There's space. It's like, oh shit. And then science goes back to work. And you know, it's kind of a beautiful dance when you think about it. It really is. But they both require such strength of conviction to commit to an idea like that, that they only want to butt heads. Mm-hmm. I'm reading a book called This by Michael Gunger, and there's a chapter about the concept of myth. Myth being a story within which we incorporate human experience in order to make sense of the experience. And so he kind of goes into this and calls science a myth and religion a myth, and I'll I'll read what he says about this, actually. While many people today consider science the antidote to myth, the practice of science is still a human meaning-making, and therefore mythic, endeavor. As the modern age has demonstrated, rational and scientific thought can help us build and destroy with tremendous power, but it cannot by itself determine what or how we should build or destroy. Science cannot by itself offer any sort of moral, spiritual, or aesthetic guidance to humanity. For that, we need myths. Without myth, there would be no possible meaning derived from experimentation. So he kind of goes into this, like, anything that we use to contextualize our experience is a myth. Because it is a story that we use to derive meaning from. Right. Almost like in the sense that, like, atheists wouldn't exist if it weren't for like the catholic catholicism christian kind of thing atheism like from what i understand got developed in response to the monotheistic christian authority it's like almost one wouldn't exist without the other so it's almost like you ultimately decide what your myth is and it just informs how you live your life and how you find your place in the world so i think what i was trying to do with that whole atheist example was oh well we 
the atheist kind of defines who they are as a response to the Christian yeah. worldview. And um, I don't know. It's kind of an interesting thing when you think about that, just for that example, you know. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. I hadn't thought about it that way in like a responsive way. Because it's true. It's always associated with Christianity or related religions. You never hear atheists railing against Taoists. <laughs> I've never heard that happen in my life. <laughs> you know, it's like it just doesn't seem like that crosses their radar a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So, Ryan. Now that we have entered into a discussion about myth and meaning making, mm-hmm. what serves you? This is a good question. One that I don't take lightly, so I have to like think about this. Oh, no problem. <laughs> serves me. Well, in a very real sense, the earth serves me. Mm-hmm. Every, I mean, the clothes I'm wearing, the food I eat, the people I love, they're all things and shapes of the earth. So it's all coming from this organism and i mean that's i don't know i mean that's i guess that's as non-metaphysical as you can get to a metaphysical question but if i were to say you know what i want to say is like well well, nothing serves me i serve (laughs) you know (laughs) blah 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 (laughs) but really like honing it in and being like wait a second there is something serving me outside you know and it would be my ego needs i guess it would be the plant-based organ, the, the organisms that I'm interacting with, you know? Mm. And I think it just gets back to what Matt was saying earlier, where it feels kind of selfish. It feels like there's this, selfing, this self-serving kind of place, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing or something to feel guilty over. I mean, we are born in this world as an individual. We have this experience, so perhaps we're here to learn, you know, what life could be like from behind two eyes i don't know you bring up a good point is knowing what serves you equivalent to knowing what feeds your ego i think that's a very good distinction to make yeah Mm. because there are varying layers you can go like i would i mean i mean for me the earth answer is the deepest you could go whereas like oh if i were to go the ego layer i'd be like well of course my mom takes care of me. If I was ever in like serious trouble, I could like call my dad and he'd help me, you know, but that's, that's a very, um, I don't know. That's, that's more of like an ego based layer that's laying on top of things there. And I feel as though like your initial question was definitely a little bit of like a deeper kind of mine. It can be. I mean, I I think it depends on how deep you've made space for it to go. So that's why I think this is such an interesting topic with you because we talk about a lot of that metaphysical stuff. And we, we talk about like how deeply we're willing to let things resonate with us emotionally and where we've allowed space for certain feelings to exist. So the answer to the question, what serves you, is as deep as you want it to be because it's however deep you've dug that well. And I wonder if like there could be an inverse that would be Almost like what serves you equals what do you serve? Yeah, I was actually just going to ask you, like, do you think you know what you serve or whether or not you serve something? That's the great mystery, I think, (laughs) knowing what I ultimately serve. Because, I mean, there are like places where, oh, I want to serve like the utmost highest ideal of 
of love and human compassion and living compassion. Mm -hmm. But those are just ideals to strive for. At the end of the day, that's it's not like you're serving it. It's not like it's there. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like tangible. There you go. You served it. <laughs> oh yeah, this guy's he's serving compassion like the guy down the street serving fucking you know tchotchkes. I don't. Know. <laughs> but are you serving whatever tangible processes, whatever tangible means there are that you think will lead you to that end result? I think so. I'm I'm not asking you personally. I'm okay. I'm saying like is it is it possible to look at it through that lens? Like oh what an abstract concept. How can I directly serve it? But no matter what the concept is, if it is abstract and ethereal and intangible, can we then zoom out a little bit and see well what leads there? And are there any physical practices? Are there any physical tangible means that we can serve the overall concept by smaller means that might eventually lead us to a better sense of that concept. So I can't serve empathy because it's an intangible concept, but I can be in the service of empathy by allowing open and loving discourse. You can reach towards it. I mean, that's maybe that's yeah. why they call it practice. You're practicing compassion. You're practicing meditation. You're practicing whatever it is because... I don't know. In a way, you never, you never quite get it right, and it never quite gets finished. In the way that, like, we like to think about things is like on an X and Y grid. It's mm. like, oh, start and good, cool. Yeah. Do you think you have an obligation to serve that which serves you, if you're aware Absolutely. of it at least? I mean, yeah. I, I, well, I, and I can only speak for me though, because my answers only apply to me and my. And within the context of my own story and how I define my story. And so like to answer that question meaningfully, I would have to use my own life experience. So like it would really only apply to me and I would never want my answer to like be a blanket answer for everyone, but to like put the lens back on me. And, you know, with that, you know, answering with the earth, I absolutely feel a duty to protect the earth or to the manifestations of the, my impact on the earth, you know? How do I want that to be? How do I want that to look? So I compost stuff. So I plant food. I try to engage in the reciprocal practices of environmental stewardship. But that's just a little, like, that's a just a scotoma. That's just a little, like, corner of things. But I, where, in, in terms of your question, where you, where you more get kind of getting along the lines of once you're aware of what serves you, should you serve back? to that thing yeah like to that specific thing or are you just obligated to serve you know kind of pay it forward like does pay it forward count as your service mm. in a way or are you obligated to also kind of turn around and serve whatever just served you like on a smaller example it could be that but could be i mean just at least theoretically yeah something as big as like well the earth serves you by giving you life and by nourishing you and allowing you to have the things and the possessions and the experiences that you have. So if that were true, then how do you quantify that service in some way that's satisfying, you know? Because if the earth gives you life, are you obligated to give it a proportional amount of service? We are not in a blood guilt culture, Matt. <laughs> yes, bloodletting. Bloodletting and sacrifices. Tried and true method, boys. <laughs> 
I got a sacrificial stone on bag. There's blood stained all over it. It's it's coming handy. Well, I don't know. The earth thing just made me think about that because I feel like this would make a lot more sense to me with a lot of smaller hypotheticals. But thinking about it in terms of something like the earth, I feel the same way. It gives me life. I feel an obligation to not fuck it up, basically. But it's also like, well, how the hell could I repay that in the way that it paid me? So am I destined to fail? Is there some way that I could actually accomplish the service that I owe it? Have I accomplished it just by living meaningfully and trying to pay that forward? You know, like, I don't know. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that until you mentioned mm. that example. When you mentioned quantify, mm-hmm. I almost wonder if if the point of it is to, or maybe you quantify by emotionally engaging. Like, I mean if it just feels amazing to be giving back or to like think about, Oh yeah, I'm offsetting certain emissions or I'm just, you know, grabbing some stuff that fell in my yard from the trees that are growing and then put it in a pile and it's going to grow the food that's going to become my body. And, um, you know, there's like a, there are certain cycles, but I mean, maybe the point of it is to feel good at the end of the day, like feeling good about, yourself and the environment you're in and feeling like you're you're bettering something Mm. almost like you know we know what it feels like to be in love with someone and time like it doesn't exist anymore you know in certain moments when you're like just in the moment in love time doesn't exist quite the same way the other like issues in life they seem to fall away and there's like there's like some kind of like special healing there and happiness is also a you know it's in there as well so i feel as though like if you're fine if you're seeking true happiness in life and you can use your own happiness as like genuine happiness as like a as your dial to quantify how you serve the world around you maybe that's something well and this just popped into my head is just that thought that it has to be quantified just serving the ego mm. does anything like that mm. need to be quantified because then there's a scorecard. Exactly. It's just a little pat on the back to say I'm doing my service. I'm a good little boy. I can go through my life yeah, now. Yeah. But maybe that's not even important. Might not be the same discussion. Yep. I think you. I think you nailed it right there. So, so we're broken. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if we can switch tracks and look at this through more of a therapeutic lens. I was thinking a few minutes ago about how in a world of sensory overload, in a world where we've built up a lot of constructs around us, in a world where maybe we do have so, so, so many friendships and some of them are not serving us, is there a process by which we can whittle down that which does not serve us and... I hesitate to say cast it aside for fear of being a little too blunt, but, you know, is there a way of seeing the things around us, the relationships around us, the constructs around us in that objective lens that would then allow us to focus more on what does serve our growth and what does foster us? And hopefully in a not too egoic way. 
because that's a that's a <laughs> I didn't even expect that to come into this conversation, but the ego is such an important component of this conversation. Yeah. It's kind of embedded in the in our perception of reality. Yeah. It is the lens through which we kind of see ourselves in the world. It's kind of the line between um, service and subservience, too, if you think about it. Because through this lens, all subservience is is just insecurely attached service. Mm. And that's mm-hmm. usually an ego thing, right? Like, it seems like it usually comes out of some kind of misshapen ego problem. And, yeah, ego's right at the heart of it all. Mm-hmm. I'll offer this as an example. Um, you know, none of us really drinks anymore. <laughs> We all came to a point in our lives where we realized that that was not serving us for any number of reasons. If it was too self-destructive of a habit, uh, if it was a social practice that wasn't lending itself to our true social personas that we wanted to offer forth and to our shared experiences with groups. So, you know, it could be something as simple as that, that at one point there was a sensory overload of it, or at one point there was an overabundance of something in our life and we could clearly see that it wasn't serving us. And that's not just an ego thing. You know, that is very much a, for your own social health, for your personal health, for the ability to grow. So it's not just a pride. It's not just how I'm seen. It's not just what do I have to offer. It's what is going to allow me to survive harmoniously and not get in the way of my thriving and get in the way of my ability to to connect with people in a way that fosters my true spirit. And almost like to get back towards like the procedural end of that question, I don't think that you or I could have come to any kind of modicum of conclusions without having just lived through time and figured out almost like bumper cars or something, what, what works and what doesn't. And, um, some people go their whole lives without even scratching the surface of that particular dynamic between substance and, ex- and health and vitality and experience to some people that they don't care about it. Some people are just driven after other questions and they're learning different lessons. It's almost like they're on different learning tracks or something. But I think that um, we uncover the things we need to when we're ready for it. Like you can't force growth. You can't force epiphanies. It just doesn't work that way. At least in my experience, it never seemed to work that way. That's a really good point. So in a way, it can't be procedural, but it does necessitate awareness. It does necessitate the space that you unconsciously or consciously make for (laughs) those epiphanies to happen when they need to happen. And I guess the unconscious part of that is an important thing to factor in here. Do you think maybe that's why the, to use the kind of redefined version of the term myth, just a creation story, essentially? Yeah. Do you think that's why the myth of the awakening, the individual awakening even exists is because there is a distinction like where like, oh man, I just... I woke up, whether it's like metaphysically or, you know, not born again necessarily because it's everywhere. When you have that moment of enlightenment, things change and then there is a process after that point, it seems like. But that whole awakening, like the idea of like, you know, the Buddha, I mean, there's there's just so many different allegories for seekers that went on like a mountaintop, had their vision 
and came back and changed everything. Well, I would almost tie it back to like the way when you think of early man walking around on the plains, you know, and then looking around one day and there's no water or there's no food or whatever, and they decide, okay, this field no longer serves me. I got to move on. That's kind of a one step leads to a decision, leads to another field, and then you continue living. But when it's something more spiritual or more internal and physical like this, that might lead to like a life awakening, you have to imagine the landscape and then you have to have that awakening and then you have to move on. So there's at least two or three steps before you even get there. You have to invent the field, then you have to invent the mountaintop, then you have to climb it, and then you have to realize you need to move to the next existential plane that you're going to exist on. And I feel like that's where myth comes in so crucially with stuff like that and why we glamorize some of these wake-ups because we need to articulate them in some way because otherwise they don't exist, but their results do. So it's something, to me at least, it makes that process make sense, you know? It gives it structure, it gives it color, gives the feeling something to attach to, and then gives you a reference point when you're moving away. It's like your, your impetus where you're being pulled just as much as you're reaching for it yeah so yeah i mean in that sense they're definitely therapeutic there's there's just so much this there's so many unique therapies out there that i think can serve the seeker of today or like you know the person that's just trying to better themselves or even just feel less anxiety than they did yesterday i think that there are very much tools and processes that are available to all kinds of people I don't know if was that your the original question or not necessarily. I guess the original question wasn't so much what are the specific tools and practices as they are labeled within the world of therapy. Maybe it was interpreted that way. <laughs> Maybe that's what I mm-hmm. meant originally. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, we didn't go that way. So well, I, we, I think know, we, we... We didn't go yeah. that way. So, I mean, you two answered the question pretty perfectly, I think. Noticing a barrenness in what is not serving you and then allowing space for the epiphany to reside once it happens, but not necessarily consciously seeking the epiphany because that could be a fool's errand. And we've tried it. I mean, I know I have, man, I'm going to hike to that mountain there and just sit, see what happens. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Bust. (laughs) Yeah, and it's like when you are actively seeking for it, that's when it's most elusive. However, I don't think that means that we should not be seekers. I think that means that we should not seek in vain, maybe. Or maybe we should be movers, you know, or seekers in like a allowing the tip of that spear to be passive, you know, like a lot of times when I'm like dealing with writer's block or something, the solution is never to sit back and wait for the muse to come regale me with something. It's like, I always want to go out and, you know, thrust myself into some situation or just sit down and write and just, just get the machine working again, get things going. But I'm not necessarily going for a specific end. It's just like, make sure that I'm in the fight, make sure that stuff is swirling around me so that I don't necessarily know what's going to hit me or what's going to arrive or present itself, but I'm available when it does. It's like you're showing up. Yeah, like it takes activity right up to the point where it's passive. And then that last little let go is where the song's going to come in or the awakening or whatever is on the table at that point. Mm-hmm. Insert activity here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, I definitely like I mean, something that I learned, I did a, a voice lessons. I still do, you know, quite a bit of voice work. And that was the big takeaway because I started working on my voice later in life, like mid-20s. And so it was kind of hard. I had to unlearn the way I sang as a kid and to get these mechanics down. But essentially it was like putting trust in the fact that like, okay, I'll keep showing up, you know, going through the scales or whatever the the practice was at hand. It was like, just show up and work your expectations and your havingness, your level of personal havingness of that moment. And I feel as though I've had major breakthroughs since then. And it applies to life, really. It's It's like songwriting or epiphanies or spiritual connection it's like all right you can show up maybe you're having a shitty day and you sit down meditation sucked because you were trying to look for something that wasn't there and you still don't feel much better after but if you do it again the next day or later that evening and you keep showing up i feel like that's when those moments really come in where like you said where the tip of the spear gets cast and then those moments come I like this songwriting analogy, actually, because Ryan, you and I are both people who we write a lot of riff based songs. If you sit down to write a riff, it's probably not going to happen right away. But if you sit down and just play for a while, and I do mean play as though it is not work, then that's when you're going to stumble upon the riff. That's when you cast your spear when you finally find the thing that you've been seeking, but you haven't been seeking it too earnestly, so earnestly that it will elude you. Yeah. Or getting the the feelings of contrived notions where I'm going to sit down and I want to write a song like this, like this White Stripes song. And, you know, you listen to it and it's like, oh, geez, that's just, there's no, there's nothing in there. <clears throat> that little. Which, which sure is possible, mm-hmm. but. You know, I think the more organic and the more fulfilling and the more rewarding experiences are when we sit down and lose ourselves in the playing. And then that's when we kind of happen upon our most original work. Well, that seems like it's just it. Like it's the losing yourself in it because to have any kind of preconceived notion that this is the song I'm going to write and it's going to be like this and I'm going to damn well find it means that you think you know where that growth is going to lead. You know, when you're just sitting there and playing and just lost in your yourself and your spirit for however long, who knows what can happen to you, you know, while you're in there. And almost every time I feel like you come out at least a tiny bit different. Sometimes it's revelatory. Sometimes it's just you had a really good time and it changes the course of the rest of your day. But either way, whatever little blip on the horizon you've been focusing on is going to be different by the time you get there. So allowing yourself to be available for whatever that is, I think that's like an important humbleness in a lot of creative pursuits. And the flip side, I guess, would be like shop writing and stuff. Like that seems like kind of a different, almost more like writing a sitcom or something. It's like you're trying to, you're going for wit. You're not going for for depth in that way. Yeah. Or to keep with like the songwriting analogy, like the Nashville yeah. writers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Where they'll they'll just sit and be like, okay... So this demographic was losing their virginity around the 80s. So these were the top 40 in the 80s. Let's craft a song that sounds like that. But I think but that can be it just as it can be just as valuable in some ways because it's just about like you know one of them's vertical, one of them's horizontal. It's just kind of 
that's about how can I take this really simple thing that everybody's experienced and describe it in a slightly different way or describe it in a catchy way. Or it's, you know, it's all about the kind of deftly maneuvering around that hook. Mm. Whereas something like this is like, how can I dive the hell off of this cliff and survive? And they're both important, mm-hmm. but they're such different approaches. Like stepping off the cliff and just being free from it, you know, like, all right, here we go. I'm just gonna pick up the instrument and not think. Yeah. That's the scariest thing in the world on paper. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Definitely. Joel, do you have an answer to the question? To what serves me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think we touched upon this earlier on, you know, do we have to serve that which serves us? And I would say absolutely, because I think my answers are the same. What serves me is open, vulnerable discourse. And therefore, I am in the surface of open and vulnerable discourse because I seek to perpetuate it. Uh What serves me is beauty. And I'm in the service of beauty because I seek to perpetuate it. What serves me is... Oh, I had a third thing earlier. (laughs) 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 Uh, But yeah, I, I think my answer really has to be the same for both because it is a matter of once you find out what serves you, you then must serve it in order to perpetuate it so that it can continue to serve you. So I think about this primarily as an artist, primarily as someone who tries to cultivate aesthetic. And if not for the work of others to cultivate aesthetic, I would not have been able to see the value in that. And so I then have to take that and cast my proverbial spear and say, okay, I'm capable of this, and therefore I must cultivate aesthetic. I must do my best to cultivate beauty so that it exists not only in my world, but in the world. Um, So what am I contributing when I write a song? What am I seeking to feel? And is it not only the acknowledgement that what I have done is beautiful, but am I just on a basic level seeking to feel beauty and to release more beauty into the world so that more beauty can inhabit the world. When I am on this podcast or when I am just having an open and vulnerable discourse with somebody, the reason that that is valuable to me is that it existed before I was here and I cast my proverbial spear and I caught that thing and realized that it had value to me and because it had value to me i must perpetuate it by offering open honest vulnerable discourse so that vulnerability can exist in not only my world but in the world so i think necessarily my answers to both questions have to be the same thing because you know taking this back to the earth That is something that you necessarily have to serve in order for it to serve you. 
so that you not only can have fresh produce in your world, but there can be fresh produce in the world, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think that has to be my, my approach to this. And um, it has to, it kind of goes back to that, the energy flowing to something or someone and then back to you and back to them and back to you. And the Zimzum idea, because... If you don't give, <laughs> then what business have you taking? <laughs> well, I like that. Yeah. It kind of ties all of the answers together, and it makes it sort of work without respect to the ideology behind it, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, emphasis added right there. <laughs> yeah, I like that. It, Joel, it makes me think we should get a soundboard. You probably should. If someone makes a point, we can do the like the air horn, like shock jocks. Yeah. You know? Just, just yeah. do cuckoos. Cuckoo. Yeah. I've been feeling like we've, we're going that direction. <laughs> that would be great if one of us just goes off the fucking deep end for like 10 minutes. Just hit that. Hey, that I've been trying to sound design. You don't know what's coming. <laughs> that would like destroy the vulnerability. We'd both be so self-conscious after one episode. No, I know. Or like, like at the moment where you were talking about vulnerability, it was beautiful, but like, just like creep in some creed or something and then <laughs> like back it out. <laughs> no, that would totally ruin the moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really does. It kind of like brings everything back into focus. Because the question is like a linear question, but it's really, it's ultimately a circle. It's a cyclical open and vulnerable discourse. And then there's you and there's like, you know, arrows circling around it. And it's like, yeah, which one comes first? It's kind of like they both do and they both don't. Well, that's a metaphysical question in and of itself. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it all? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, can something only serve you because it existed before you? I don't think that's even worth delving into. <laughs> I think we'd be backtracking, ultimately. Yeah. I don't know. Did we get there? <laughs> was, it, was it good for you? <laughs> I think maybe the only thing that we didn't put a cap on is, is it worth viewing this as a process-oriented endeavor? I, for me, no. Because it, it kind of points back to the, the quantifying of things, but it's like making a process of it. It kind of attaches a framework to something that what we're trying to describe is something that is like embedded with the understanding of like the metaphysical question at hand. And when you start to make the process of it, it starts to become a left hand thing. It starts to become like that linear process where it's like, Oh, I'm broken. And now I have to get fix something. You're almost looking for a problem versus going the other route, which would be almost like embracing like a wholeness to things like stepping outside of needing to write that song and just showing up or stepping outside of needing to like control something or make, make a point A and point B out of it. Here's the only reason that I would disagree. And I don't disagree with all of it. I think that was beautiful. But 
in my personal experience, some of this has been process oriented. And it's not that I'm looking, it was that I was looking for problems, I guess, but it wasn't, I have my scorecard, let me try to quantify the things that I'm serving me and the things that are not. It wasn't, let me try to quantify what is serving my ego right now. It was looking around for what is only serving my ego. What constructs have I built up around me only to get superficial reinforcement? You'll find more things, maybe not more things that serve you, but you'll find more value in the things that do truly serve you if you are able to see the things that do not as superficial constructs that are maybe meant to be broken down. So I do think that there's a procedural element to breaking them down. I don't think that we should go around looking for epiphanies. I do think that once we have one, and once we have noticed that there are some things that are not offering us value, and that are only able to be seen as obstacles anymore, to procedurally observe the obstacles in your life and break them down if necessary. I think it's extremely valid to not try to quantify that process, to not be holding your scorecard and keeping track of how much enlightenment did I gain today? <laughs> but it's very valuable, I think, maybe if you're a process-oriented person, to you know, develop a hypothesis, like these might be the things that are hurting me, these might be the things that are not serving me. And then carry out the thought experiment of what does my life look like without that? What does my life look like without this belief structure? What does my life look like without these social elements that feel superficial? And I can really only speak from personal experience there. But I do think there's a lot of value in embracing procedure. Well, maybe there's a duality there, like... Maybe it's not defining it by procedure, but embracing procedure. Like think of like gardening or something physical like that. Like it's not defining it by the procedure because you don't necessarily look at it with a specific end that will make it a finite thing. Like I'm not going to create this garden, let all this stuff grow and then be like, okay, fuck it. Stepping away. It's done. I did that and I never have to do it again. Like you turn it over, you cultivate it, you let it kind of grow each year, whatever, but it involves different procedures. Like there's going to be days you have to walk out and address the weeds and start dealing with that process or pick stuff because it's fall or water it because it's dying or whatever. And all of those individual things are processes that have to happen and you have to kind of look at them like processes so you can get from your bed to the garden and back and accomplish the goal. But that's not the point of the whole garden. That's just something you had to do to tend to it. So maybe it's something like that, like there's going to be processes involved in getting you to make sure that your eyes are open and you're pointing the right way and you're addressing things in a way that's going to be helpful to you. But that isn't the entire picture. Mm. Well, and sometimes you go your whole life not realizing that there was a garden there at all because it was overgrown with weeds the whole time. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm getting at is once you realize like, oh, shit grows here. <laughs> <laughs> then you have to weed the garden, which is a procedural process. Yeah. And on, on the other end of the spectrum, though, there are some types that make the procedure kind of like they take it too far, you know? And I think that's kind of what I was getting at initially. And I think that the thing to remember is that the process 
is a tool at the end of the day and not to get sucked into, oh, A plus B equals C and today is A and the next year is going to be B because you're you're just going to lock yourself up when the real case is that this framework there's there's like the within you without you thing there's like there's there's so much more around the framework it's just a language that is that is meant to i don't know be it a useful tool to identify these things and ultimately make you feel better at the end of the day if we're talking specifically about spiritual emotional processes and stuff like that but yeah when that process becomes a sort of way for you to engage in fundamentalist thinking, then that can be really harmful, I think. Mm -hmm. Like if you say, well, weeding the garden is the only way for the garden to grow, then (laughs) you might start looking at some of your plants as weeds, and really they could nourish you. (laughs) You know, there's a a sign. Um, Ryan, did you watch that new Zac Efron show at all? No. They go to this um, place in Costa Rica, and it's a place where people can learn about sustainable living. And there's a sign that says, like, what is a weed, a plant whose benefits haven't been discovered yet? So I think about that sign. It's like, if you just go around pulling every weed, well, then maybe one of those weeds is full of the medicine that you need later on, and then you don't have it anymore. That's one of my favorite things about any sort of philosophical tangent or thought like you know just you can lose an entire afternoon doing that it's just so fun to to think about like where did we start defining ourselves by our tools you know because it's so easy to they're they're fun and there's a lot of work that went into creating them and there's a lot of ego and stuff that can be kind of ascribed to them but the weeds thing was actually what did it for me too i was weed whacking a couple of weeks ago (laughs) dude i had a goddamn epiphany about that like just the name i was weed whacking my grandmother's (laughs) garden and i chopped i was pretty indiscriminate with it you know just kind of whacking everything and uh and i started thinking like what could could my defense be here if she comes outside (laughs) in the next week and a half and uh i realized like i could argue to the subjectivity of what is a weed, really? I mean, mm-hmm. but it got me thinking about this shit, man. Because there's so many things like that that we it's we get so lost in what that tool meant in that moment. We decided to use it that we forget that that moment has passed. That whole cycle has passed. We're on to something else now, and I feel like that's where that presence has to come back into play. You know, you have to kind of know when to sever yourself from again, like where it has ceased to serve you, like where that tool is no longer serving you. You can still respect that it did. You can still pick it back up if you need it again, but kind of deal with that juncture respectfully, just as you did when you picked it up and then move on to the next one. So you're available for that. Mm -hmm. Should we all start telling parables for a living? (laughs) I think we could. We definitely could. Ryan, where can we find your art? RyanHerrick.com would be the best place, but I am available on Facebook and Instagram. Lately, I've been kind of Facebook-centric, so Facebook, at Ryan Herrick Music. But I would say check out my website, and I'm on all the streaming platforms. 
Oh, and tell us what um, tell us about this project. So you're releasing three EPs, correct? Yes. So, well, it's going to be kind of a little more complex than that. I'm going to be releasing a few singles in the next couple months, and then I'm going to be doing a limited, like, physical CD pre-order where for, like, I think it's going to be sometime the month of November and early part of December where if people are into it and they just want, you know, this custom like full length album of all instrumentals it will be available and i'll ship them to your house and whatever i'll have t-shirts and things like that and i guess what makes it exclusive is that it's not going to be on streaming the same way the same songs aren't going to be on streaming so it's definitely going to be a unique piece you won't be able to get it anywhere else but outside of that i'm also just releasing singles I don't know, over the next probably 8 to 12 months, one single a month, and they will culminate on EPs on like streaming channels and stuff like that, but um, okay. really the big moment is going to be the album that's going to come out in November, and it's only going to come out if you follow me and you go on my website and you are interested in it. So the big album is is all of the songs that are the singles and the EPs in a different track order? Uh, no. So each EP is actually going to have alternate mixes um, and they're kind of split into concept EPs. So they carry a certain vibe. They carry a certain thread that's unique to itself. Whereas like the full LP is this like woven fabric of what I call the 14 quintessential mixes that I came up with in the studio where I was like, okay, yeah, that feels like the song. But the name of the album is going to be called Pilgrimage because... For me, going to the studio is a pilgrimage of sorts. And the the things actually we talked about tonight, um, just about showing up at the guitar and just letting the moment drive musical creation, that's very much how, I guess, 60% of this new album was created. It was created f- directly from the live streams that I was doing on Facebook. And I just kind of milled down the ideas that I really enjoyed. And I also recycled some ideas that I've explored through my previous releases as well. So just with new spins, new takes. Great. I, I really look forward to this release cycle of yeah. yours. So, so when does the first single of many drop? Uh, Friday, Friday, October 30th will be the first one. And it's a song called Outside of Time. Okay. So I think this will be released a little bit after that. but. Cool. For our listeners, just know that when this is released, Ryan will be in the process of this uh, single release cycle that will culminate in EPs. And if you want the full-length CD, make sure to follow him and to pre-order that. Uh, so what's what's when's the release for the full length? Probably mid to late December. I haven't selected the time frame quite yet, but the pre-order period is going to be the whole month of November and early December. So just go to my website at this point, you know. Stay in the loop. Awesome. Thanks for doing this episode with us. Thanks for and having me. I think we had some valuable content on here, I think. Yeah, it was fun. Cool. <laughs> it was an interesting journey. It was really fun, and it's a very unique way to finally meet you, Matt, but I've I've heard a lot of great things. So Yeah, likewise. Um, and just having this conversation was just refreshing, and I enjoyed it. So thank you. Thank you. And that's our show. We want to thank Ryan Herrick for being such a great guest. And once again, this episode was scored using selections from his new album, Pilgrimage. 
which was a limited release, but you can also find versions of these songs anywhere that you would regularly stream your music. So please go show him some support. We'll be back in two weeks when we'll be talking about content warnings and the debate within the psychiatric community about whether they can be harmful or helpful. Black Market Therapy is a Dead and Mellow production. I hope you're enjoying the Scatterbrain sessions as well as new episodes of the Black Market Book Club. Ryan will be joining us for an episode of the Book Club soon. But until then, please listen to his music, follow him on social media, and you can find us on social media as well to keep up to date with what the show has in store. We'll see you soon. Bye.